1: do your lawn care. Visit truegreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed.
2: If you're shopping while working, eating or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back, and you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Urban Outfitters, Fenty Beauty and Expedia and even stack sales
1: Sponsored by Raytheon. I think Kim got the better part of the deal. He achieved most of what he wanted. He received international stature and the credibility of meeting with the U.S. president, which is something that eluded both his father and grandfather. In his walkabouts in Singapore, he became somewhat of a rock star. What about China? China got most of what it wanted out of this. Beijing all along has wanted the de-escalation of rhetoric intentions and for us to get back into a process. I think we simply need to find ways of engaging with China in pursuit of some kind of a stable balance of power in the region rather than mobilizing for a zero-sum contest or an arms race. I think we need to get our act together. Paul Hare
0: is an expert in East Asian affairs. He is a career CIA analyst. At the agency, Paul was a political and foreign policy analyst on Southeast Asia before specializing on China. For eight years, he served as a national intelligence officer for East Asia, the senior analyst of East Asia in the U.S. intelligence community. Following his service in government, Paul was a visiting fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations and at the Center for International Studies at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He currently teaches at George Washington University. He is the author of the just published Mr. X and the Pacific, George F. Kennan, and American Policy in East Asia. I sat down with Paul yesterday to talk about the U.S.-North Korea summit, as well as the future of U.S.-China relations. We will be right back with Paul after a word from our exclusive sponsor, Raytheon. This is Intelligence Matters, and I am Michael Morrell.
2: Podcast presented by Raytheon. From connected devices to infrastructure. To critical mission systems. Raytheon crosses networks, markets, and continents, defending every side of cyber to make the world a safer place. Paul, welcome to the show. It is great
0: to
1: have you on. Oh, it's great to be here, Michael. It's quite a pleasure.
0: I wanted to start by asking how a kid from Iowa ends up at the CIA.
1: Well, I heard the story once in all a kid from Ohio ended up at the CIA. (laughs) Well, I, uh, I studied history and international relations as an undergraduate and in graduate school, and when I completed that and decided that I uh, needed to move into the real world rather than continue to accumulate student loan debts, I applied to the CIA, uh, actually not fully knowing at the time what they did, but made it through. Uh, Why did you apply? Because I was very interested in international relations and in, uh, in, in public service in support of that, that set of issues. So I actually applied for the CIA at the same time I took the foreign service exam. I made it through the first part, the written part of the foreign service exam, but not the uh, oral exam. Mm-hmm. But in the meantime, the CIA came through after the clearance process was exhausted and offered me a job. And you
0: were an analyst at CIA, lots of different jobs at CIA, but you were an analyst. For our listeners, what
1: what does an analyst do every day at CIA? What does an analyst do every day at CIA? Yeah. Well, I think depending on their portfolio, their job is to stay up to speed on what's happening in their area of responsibility to assess it based on all of the intelligence information they're getting in from both government and non-government sources and contribute to the analysis that's produced the foreign policy team and across the government, writing primarily, but increasingly briefing as well. And uh, you focused
0: on East Asia. Um, I did. When you first came in, you worked on Southeast Asia along with me. We both worked on the Philippines together. An interesting uh, time. It was a very interesting time, <laughs> The the change of government there from... Fernand Marcos to Cory Aquino. Fascinating time. And, and 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 then you went on to spend an awful lot of time focused on China. What got you interested in East Asia and and interested in China in particular?
1: <laughs> well actually, I became uh, an East Asia analyst admittedly by accident because I didn't know anything about East Asia frankly when I first applied for the job at CIA. The only foreign area I knew anything about is the Cold War. Uh, history student, was Europe and, and Russia, the Soviet Union. So when I applied to work originally, it was to work on Western Europe. But the clearance process took several months, and and during that time, the position I had applied for had been uh, assigned to someone else, but they still wanted me and said, we need an analyst on Southeast Asia. I said, I didn't know anything about Southeast Asia, and they said, well, you'll learn on the job if you want it, which I seized the opportunity, so I kind of fell into being an East Asia specialist And I did that for five years, as you said, working primarily on the Philippines during that period. And then I took off a sabbatical uh, year uh, to start my doctoral program. And when I came back to the agency after that year, I was offered the opportunity to work on either China or Japan. And I simply decided at the time that China was going to be much more important, I thought, over the long term. Not to denigrate the importance of Japan, but... Okay, North Korea...
0: Paul, walk us through what you think the key developments were yesterday in Singapore. How do, you, how do you think about what happened?
1: Well, on the plus side, I think that it was a very positive development that Kim Jong-un has retreated from uh, his nuclear and missile testing program and that uh, President Trump has retreated from talk of fire and fury and that they've both redirected their energies into back into – A diplomatic process. Having said that, I I think actually that Kim got the better part of the deal because I think among the things that he, he achieved most of what he wanted out of the meeting. He received international stature and the credibility of meeting with the U.S. president, which is something that eluded both his father and grandfather. Something they wanted, they both desperately wanted. Oh, they both desperately wanted, and he has too. And now he's gotten it. In fact, in his walkabouts in Singapore, he became somewhat of a rock star. And why is that important to him? Oh, just the international credibility. I mean, he knows that uh, his government is seen as a rogue regime, and that we don't recognize it diplomatically. But you know, to his his aspirations for North Korea to be acknowledged as a power, a great power, uh, a nuclear power, is absolutely central to his foreign policy agenda. And in fact, I think that's the second thing he got. I think, given that the basis for the process going forward will be denuclearization. I think you could argue that he perceives that he re- has received, really by virtue of that meeting with the president, de facto recognition of North Korea as a nuclear power, which he's been pursuing as well.
0: Is there a domestic political piece of this for him? Does no. That, do, do, how much does that matter?
1: I think it matters. I think it, I, I personally think, frankly, it matters less than is generally perceived. I mean, he obviously wants the international, the domestic credibility and legitimacy that this international stature affords him, but I think the presumption that he is nervous about his domestic position is easily overstated. I think it certainly is a boost for him, uh, and it bolsters his his leadership, but I think it's a secondary concern, really, in my view. So that's what he got. What did we get? Well, he got two other things, I think, first of all. He did get a surprising announcement from President Trump that we will suspend, apparently, U.S.-South Korea military exercises. And in that regard, he also got, and I think this may be an arcane point, but the language of the communique that they signed indicates that the two sides are pursuing denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, not just North Korea. And I think what that might mean is that the U.S. military presence in South Korea is on the table for consideration as part of this process. In exchange for that, in addition to uh, certainly the release of the prisoners that were uh, expatriated, well, repatriated uh, last month, I think it was, and the closure of the nuclear test site, one of them, which Kim did for his own reasons, I think the main thing that President Trump got, and frankly, this is why I think Kim got the better part of the deal, was what we've received is a reiteration, a reaffirmation of Kim's goal of denuclearization. Now, he's elevated it to unwavering, an unwavering commitment, <laughs> but I think that this is not new. Neither that commitment nor its reliability are new, and that's why I think that we got more than we wanted than he And frankly, I'm a little, well, I think it's telling that in all of the preparatory meetings running up to the summit, the two working level teams were not able to come to closure on more detail and more substance than that. So where do we, where do we go from here? I mean, what would be a series
0: of events that if they occurred would be a good sign to you? And what would be a
1: bad sign? Well, I think where we go from here is the renewal of the negotiating process. Uh, And I think that's one of the major deliverables of of the meeting. But frankly, all of the substance and all of the details of the issues between us remain to be addressed now in that process. Uh, And I think what's going to be really key here is North Korea's earlier and uh, explicit insistence that the process be what they call phased and synchronous and we've been somewhat resistant to that because of the reliability of their record in meeting with commitments and in terms of the imbalance in the concessions that are available on both sides. But all of the issues that have been talked about in the last couple of months, you know, the prospects for a peace treaty, for diplomatic normalization, for sanctions relief, for economic aid to the North and the security commitments that are key to his agenda remain to be addressed now. Uh, and on the latter point, I know that the, I noticed that Secretary Pompeo a couple of days before the summit indicated that Washington was prepared under this administration to go further than any previous administration on the security commitment area. But it's not clear exactly what that will look like, what we're going to say or offer uh, beyond what we have in the past. But the key problem is going to be, well, the key challenge, I should say, going forward is how this process unfolds. As I said, Kim wants it to be phased and synchronous. Uh, so all of the issues that are going to be addressed in this process, uh, which is going to be open-ended, you would note that the communique did not issue a timeline. Will be focused on deliberations between the two sides and other players uh, as to what happens when, who, who makes the first concession, and what happens yeah. uh, before this reciprocal process. and how long it'll take. Four, to go
0: four, right? Four really big buckets here. One is the North Koreans have to make a declaration. Right. If this goes well, the North Koreans have to make a declaration about their nuclear capabilities. Right? How many weapons do they have? Nuclear weapon production capabilities, both for fissile material and for the building of the weapon itself. You know, Documents, scientists, all of that, right? Both a
1: declaration and a verification process. And a
0: verification of that declaration, right? That's a huge step. And then there's getting the timetable right between them them destroying their program and us giving the security guarantees and how do those two things align? And then even if you got that far, right, an ongoing inspection process to make sure that there's not cheating down the road, right? That's a tall order, right? That's a lot of stuff that has to happen here going forward. Just your comment on that. Well, and I think
1: the administration has, you know, incrementally acknowledged that this is not going to happen overnight. I mean, the president and his team certainly said we'd like it to happen quickly, as quickly as possible. But I think they recognize, and most of the experts, even the technical experts say, that that process is going to take a long time. And at the early stages, it may well be like pulling teeth because they haven't offered a full declaration of their capabilities, their, you know, what their facilities and sites are, and that's just square one. And at what stage will they require something in exchange for us before they move to the next stage? So are you optimistic
0: here that... This is going to continue to move forward towards an outcome that advances U.S. strategic interests, or are you pessimistic? Are we going to get Uh, stuck at some point?
1: Well, I think there's – I mean, history would suggest that we're going to get stuck at some point. I mean, the precedent would suggest that. But, I mean, I, I think there's reason to be cautiously optimistic, guardedly optimistic, because both leaders clearly see utility. To, to entering into this process you know the escalation of tensions and rhetoric frankly that we saw 6 to 12 months ago doesn't serve either side's purpose it certainly doesn't serve the purposes of the other countries in the region both our allies and china so i think there's a genuine i mean it seems that there's a genuine commitment on both sides to pursue this but i think there's so much potential for disagreement uh, as to how to stage the process that we that we just need to recognize going in that this is going to be incremental and it's going to take a long time and we're going to have to be careful at each stage not to let it spin out of control.
0: So Paul in that regard many North Korea specialists have said for years that North Korea would never give up its nuclear weapons, right? Is that
1: now more of an open question than it used to be? I think it's more of an open question than it used to be. I always think frankly it was it was always to a marginal extent maybe an open question. To me the question was were the other parties, particularly Washington, frankly, prepared to give him what would be necessary for him to agree to do that? Will security securances be credible and reliable and persuasive enough? Uh, and will what other, any other carrots that we have to bring to the table, will they be enough for him to believe that he can really negotiate away what he sees as his only trump card? It's the leverage that brought us to the table. It's what gives him the credibility, yeah. right? So I think the bar is very, very high. But it, to me, it's not inconceivable. But I think it's, frankly, I think it's a harder challenge for us to determine whether we're willing to pay his price and, and and trust him any more than he's willing to trust us. Do you read any
0: particular significance into the fact that there was no mention in the communique of ICBMs or of biological and chemical weapons? um so i was hoping for a communique that talked about ridding the peninsula of weapons of mass destruction and long range missiles right not just not just nuclear weapons
1: that would have been nice but i can only assume that that was something that the uh, the two sides were not able to agree on in advance there's there's virtually no detail uh and as i said no timetable in the communique uh it all remains to be worked out and it's i'm i'm sure because Our efforts to insert that granularity in the document were were not concurred upon by the North Korean side.
0: We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. We'll be right back with more of our discussion with Paul Hare.
2: In a world where every degree, every dollar, every defender, and every domain is connected, seeing every angle is essential. That's why Raytheon works across networks, markets, and continents. Combining human ingenuity with artificial intelligence to outpace and outmatch every threat to protect commercial enterprise, critical infrastructure, and mission critical systems to deliver trusted innovative solutions that secure our way of life and defend every side of cyber. This is Raytheon, making our increasingly connected world a safer place because when everything is connected, security is everything. So, Paul, three, three other
0: key actors here. Let me get your sense of how they're thinking today about U.S.-North Korean relations, the first, the first being South Korea, particularly in light of President Trump's agreement to suspend uh, military exercises on the peninsula.
1: Well, I think President Moon will certainly be very pleased that the engagement process he's been involved in for the past couple of months, including directly with Kim and with President Trump, has yielded this breakthrough uh, in terms of the two of them coming together into a process moving forward, because that's what he was seeking all along. On the other hand, I think he will be concerned about the implications of the president's unilateral announcement on the exercises, which by every indication came as a surprise to Seoul. And I think that will, under, it will underscore lingering concerns uh, in Seoul about our attention to their interests. And I think, frankly, it will under, it it may reinforce latent fault lines in the relationship. Japan? I think the same applies to Abe. I mean, less directly because the uh, U.S.-South Korea military exercises are are not part of his, what Tokyo has been involved in. But I think that it will, he will be pleased at the process as well. But I think that the president's kind of impulsive announcement on the exercises will reinforce Japan's concerns as well about the reliability uh, of Washington as being attentive to their interests. As you know, Prime Minister Abe came to Washington last week to compare notes with the president before the trip. And I think that he's somewhat comfortable with our attention to some of Tokyo's particular interests, like the abductee uh, issue, uh, which I'm sure you're familiar with. But that didn't come up as far as we know at the summit. And I think Basically, I think Abe will have some of the same ambivalence about the results uh, that Moon does. What about China? China got most of what it wanted out of this. I I think that there was a kind of contrary or a a contrarian uh, line of analysis in the run-up to the summit that the Chinese were somehow nervous that their interests were going to be compromised here, and I never saw the potential for that. A friend of mine drew attention to the fact that uh, it was an Air China flight uh, that took him to Singapore, indicated that uh, they were still in the game. Uh, That was symbolic. It was more than symbolic. It was well, his own plane wasn't reliable enough. Exactly, but Beijing all along has wanted the de-escalation of rhetoric and tensions, and for us to get back into a process, and that's what's achieved for them. And in fact, they got even more than that. They essentially got the freeze-for-freeze proposal that they had tabled up to I think two years ago, where we would suspend military exercises with South Korea in exchange for Kim suspending nuclear and missile tests, and we saw that as a non-starter for a long time, and now it's been achieved. And they also
0: got something else, right? They got, they got confirmation of the idea that the U.S. true presence is linked to North Korea, right? And if you can de-escalate that, that puts pressure on the U.S. true presence in Asia.
1: Well, I, I wouldn't say they got confirmation of that. I mean, it depends on your interpretation of the statements that were made. And, and well, and, frankly, some of the statements that the president made even before the summit uh, where this is something he would consider. Right, right. Uh, That's what I mean. And the Chinese and the, and the North Koreans uh, clearly share that goal of getting the U.S. military presence off the peninsula. But again, if if that is something that uh, is on the table, that will also possibly reinforce President Moon's concerns in Seoul. Mm -hmm. I do find it interesting, Paul,
0: that the U.S. agreement to suspend the military exercises was not part of the communique, right? So I wonder what else was discussed, what other other agreements might have been, you know, that we don't know about yet. We just don't know what happened in that one-on-one meeting. You know, we may learn over time and that may change our our analysis of what's going on here. I want to ask you some broader questions about China, given given your expertise. And I think maybe the, there's two, um, I think, big ones. And the first is, how do you see China vis-a-vis the United States? Do you see it as a threat? Do you see it as a challenge? Do you see it as a strategic competitor? How would you characterize it?
1: I would certainly characterize it as a challenge, as really an unprecedented challenge. I see it as a, I think it's certainly safe to call it a strategic competitor. I think it's an overstatement to call it a threat. And I think that, the you know, one of my concerns is that I think that this is a function of a stereotype and a mischaracterization of China's strategic objectives toward us. Well, and certainly toward its role in the region and in the world. I noticed that the, the national security strategy document says that China's goal is to, I think, shape a world antithetical to U.S. interests and values. And the part of the prevailing narrative in addition to that is that China wants to kick the United States out of East Asia, uh, wants to supplant us as the global hegemon, wants to remake the international system in its image. I frankly don't think any of these things are true. I think they're an exaggeration of China's motives. What are their ambitions? China wants to maximize its wealth and its power and its international influence, but it believes that it was denied its rightful place in the region and in the world for most of the 19th and 20th centuries. And a lot of their, as a historian, their ambition is aimed at overcoming that. Now, I think that in pursuit of that ambition, they pose a multifaceted and major strategic challenge an unprecedented one because i think that they're not like the soviet union uh, but i think they have a lot more resources to bring to bear than the soviet union did they're much more integrated into the world i know i may be a dissenting view on this but i don't believe that the chinese are approaching this exclusively as a zero-sum game i think there is an ideological component to the competition they pose to us uh because they are i mean there's been a lot of attention given to this especially since xi jinping's references that the his party Congress last fall about offering China's developmental and government's model as one for the rest of the world to emulate. I think he certainly wants to do that. Uh, I read something today which characterized it, I thought, very well. Is China wants to make the world safe for autocracy. They want to make their, their model uh, acceptable in the world. I don't think they believe that it's either necessary or achievable for the rest of the world to become communized or socialized. But it's a formidable challenge. And they're, they're competing against us in virtually every realm. And I, I would emphasize, especially the non-military realms. I mean, China certainly is a military problem for us, a potential threat. But I think it, capability does not necessarily translate into a threat. And we can get come back to the military issue. Uh, but I think the challenge that China poses to us is not primarily a military one; it's primarily in the economic realm, which is where they see the bulk of their international power and influence, and the diplomatic clout that they can derive from it. And this is reflected in any number of initiatives, including their Belt and Road Initiative. We can go into the details about what they're doing. But they're using every level, lever of national power at their disposal in pursuit of these strategic objectives. Uh, and I think they're going to pursue those goals relentlessly and ruthlessly. And there's going to be disputes about who's playing by the rules. But I think they're enough of a challenge even when they are playing by the rules.
0: So given all of that, right, which makes, certainly makes sense to me, Resonates with me. What's the right strategic approach on the part of the United States to China? You know, we seem we seem a little lost <laughs> in in thinking about how to deal with this country. What would you say the right strategic approach is for the United States to deal with this issue? Oh.
1: Well, as you know, I was an intelligence analyst, so I wasn't you weren't asked this question with, before. I wasn't <laughs> asked questions about what our policies should be. But in retirement, I've been able to contemplate these things. <laughs> And I think there are several components there, and it has a lot to do with, as you said, we, we appear to be a little lost. I think we need to get our act together, and I think that involves several things. I think, first of all, I think we need to come up with a more accurate and rational understanding of China's strategic intentions, as I said a minute ago, than I think currently prevails. Because I think we've simply exaggerated their threat into something comparable to the Soviet Union and something existential and something zero-sum. I may be wrong, but I don't think it's any of those things. Mm-hmm. Secondly, I think we need to rationalize and clarify and perhaps even recalibrate our own strategic objectives, partly because, you know, our relative cloud and influence in the world, even though we remain the most powerful country in the world, uh, has been eroding. And I think particularly within East Asia, which is where a lot of this is kind of the front line of our contest with China, I think we need to reassess our own goals because I frankly... My judgment is that the primacy that we've enjoyed in East Asia since World War II is not permanently sustainable. And I think that pursuing it as such will be counterproductive. So I think uh, in line with that, I think the second thing we have to realize is that there are simply limits to our power and influence, especially within the region. And I think if if you reassess a realistic adjust, uh, assessment of China's goals and a realistic uh, reassessment of our own, I think we simply need to find ways of engaging with China toward a stable, in, in pursuit of some kind of a stable balance of power in the region, rather than mobilizing for a zero sum contest or an arms race, which I know, frankly, a lot of people are, are advocating. And I think this will be an incremental process over many years if it's effective, but I think we need to pursue confidence building measures certainly efforts to demilitarize the many security uh, issues and disputes that we have in the region. And I think, you know, we don't need to retreat from the field. We don't need to surrender to an exclusive Chinese sphere of influence in the region or certainly in the world. I do believe that there can be such a thing as overlapping spheres of influence. But along those lines, I think that we still can rely and should on our alliances, both within the region certainly and in the world, but I think we need to be careful. We need to be attentive to, I mentioned earlier, the the ambivalence, really, that, that Abe and Moon have about the United States and its commitment to the region, its attention span, frankly, its ability to, to operate because of our own domestic political problems. I think we need to be careful not to take for granted our allies, not to assume that they will always identify their interests wholly with ours. And finally, I think the main thing we need to do is get our own act together, frankly. It's a separate issue. But, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of dysfunctionality in American politics right now. And there are certain lingering economic problems we're facing in the wake of the financial crisis from 10 years ago, which is one of the sources of the perception, if not the reality, of the relative decline of the United States and the rise of China. If you're not strong at home, you can't be strong overseas. Yeah. It's I mean, simple. we need to do that. But, and, and, and the reason this is so important is I mentioned before that we are engaged in a multifaceted competition with china around the world for economic influence for for security relationships for diplomatic clout for for the the prevalence and the acceptability of our political and economic development models we can complain about that but a, the best remedy for it is to step up to the plate and compete and we can't do that until we get our act together i mean the one example i would cite i mean uh, the complaints uh, i mean there are certain concerns there certainly are valid concerns about China's effort to extend its influence through this Belt and Road Initiative, which involves all kinds of loans and infrastructure projects across the Eurasian landmass to uh, to extend China's influence. And they're doing this in ways that are not necessarily following our rules. Yeah. But we're not offering the target countries a viable alternative. And frankly, the withdrawal from TPP reinforces that fact. Paul, one
0: um, one last question. If you were briefing President Trump on China...
1: What is the one thing that you would want him to know? I guess I would reiterate what I said before. I would want him to know that China is not trying to shape a world antithetical to U.S. values and interests. It's a much more subtle, uh, no less substantial challenge than that. But I think mischaracterizing what China is trying to do in the world, uh, particularly with regard to our interests and our security, risks overly militarizing our China policy towards something which is probably not going to be very effective and will be very expensive in the meantime. Yeah, the wrong
0: analysis takes you often down the wrong policy road.
1: I think so. And we're at risk of that. Yeah.
0: So, Paul, I wanted to, um, I I actually wanted to spend some time talking about your terrific book, (laughs) Mr. X and the Pacific, George F. Kennan and American Policy in East Asia. Fascinating book. And I would recommend it to folks to read. But unfortunately, we've run out of time. But I want to thank you for um, spending it with us, particularly the day after the summit in Singapore. It's great to see you. um, And thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Michael, very much. I'll come back and talk about the book sometime. Excellent. Thank you. That was Paul Hare. I'm Michael Morrell.
0: Please join us next week for more Intelligence Matters.
1: This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Sponsored by Raytheon. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Claire Himes. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morrell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio.